Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to our weekly message. We know that everyone is currently operating in a new normal as we are all experiencing some life-altering challenges during this difficult time in our world. We hope that these messages offer some hope and reassurance and that it reminds you that our hope does not lie in man, but in God and his plan for all of us. If you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or other key information, check out our website, anacorduschristian.church. You can contact us directly through there or by phone or email. As for now, take some time to sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy the message. Okay, so to get started into our message, I want to start with a little bit of a thought experiment. I want to ask you to think about where you are right now. And I don't necessarily mean where you're sitting or jogging, if you're listening to this on our podcast, or, you know, what home you're in. What I mean is, where have you situated yourself in your life, your career, your family, in this moment in time? And, and I want you to think with me for a moment and ask, how did I get to where I am today? What did I do or what factors had to be in place for me to be where I am to have what I have today? Okay. Now for me, the reason that I'm here preaching today is partly because Aaron Bryant started a preaching team ministry shortly after I got hired as ACC's associate minister. Of course, the reason I was hired was because my wife's father was an elder at ACC at the time when the church was looking to hire someone. Now, of course, one of the reasons I took the job was because I had wanted to go into ministry and my current job wasn't paying very much and I was a newly married college grad and, you know, we needed to find something. Of course, the reason I was pursuing a career in the worship ministry in the first place had to do with my education that I got at Trinity Western University. But then, I would never would have gotten, gone to Trinity if I had not first met my wife, who was planning on going there. And I wouldn't have met my wife if not for a jewelry store owner in Mount Vernon, who also owned a store in Ketchikan, Alaska, where I am from. Now, I may not have been born in Ketchikan, Alaska, had my dad not decided to launch a new business as a health spa owner, where he met my mom. The business didn't last very long. But then, my mom would not have had any kids at all because she almost had a hysterectomy for a life-threatening ovarian cyst that had internally ruptured. And the only reason she didn't have the operation was because of a doctor all the way down in California who was willing to fly her down from Alaska on a Learjet and sit with her for an entire long night extracting fluid from her abdomen with a syringe. Which is to say that the only reason that I am preaching in front of you today is because of an argument that my grandma had with her father in 1947, which resulted in her jumping off the fishing boat that she had boarded with him in Seattle five months earlier. She then ran off with my grandpa, whom she had just met in the middle of nowhere, Cape Muzon, Alaska, and within the week, they were married. Now, as human beings, we like to feel in control. And especially at times when we are at ease or prospering, it's easy to look around and convince ourselves that we, in our own power, are ultimately responsible for our own destinies. 
We can chart the course and trace the path that it took to get there and completely forget the countless other factors that had to perfectly be situated in order for us to be where we are. Not to mention that at any given moment, our very existence hangs by a thread and can vanish at a moment's notice. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was at ease, prospering on the roof of his palace, gazing upon all the wonders of Babylon, the work of his hands, he came to a point where he viewed himself as a tree of life. That is to say, he came to believe that he himself was the self-generating source of life and prosperity for his kingdom, for himself, for all nations, peoples, and languages. And the text of Daniel 4 is written in just such a way as to describe that when we embrace that self-deception, that pride, that false confidence, it is actually like taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or doing what seems right in our own eyes, as the biblical authors often put it. And the result of taking of this tree is exile and death or a kind of death anyway, instead of being superhuman like a god, he becomes subhuman like a beast of the field. But after seven periods of time, the king-turned-beast turns his eyes toward heaven and finally acknowledges that he needs God, that he is not, in fact, the supreme source of generating power of his own life, much less the lives of his subjects. He finds himself stripped of everything. And when he finally acknowledges God, the Lord restores his mind, then his kingdom to an even greater degree than it had been before. The tree had to be cut down, but not the stump and the roots. God still had a plan and a hope for the king. And I had this Johnny Cash song stuck in my head. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. It's a good song. And so it is Nebuchadnezzar himself who writes a good portion of Daniel 4 as a proclamation to all peoples, nations, and languages declaring the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for him. How great, how, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 17, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It is God's prerogative, not the king's. It's God who's in control. He can shuffle the pieces of the chessboard of your life any way that he pleases. And the question is, do you trust him with that? Do you trust his plan? Do you believe he has a plan? What is the plan? And to answer that question, I want to invite you to consider the trees. That's where we're going. When King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in the midst of his prosperity, he sees a tree, and this tree represents himself. So let's just read an excerpt from chapter 4. Let's read verse 10 through 17. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. 
The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Let's pause and pray. Father, I just want to stop and acknowledge that this is your word. And often your word speaks in ways that uh, we don't expect. We go looking for pictures, for sentences that work the way our minds work in a uh, post-enlightenment, sort of Greek-inspired, rational-based, argument-based way of thinking. But you invite us to think through your word with pictures, images, in this case, images of trees and beasts and fruit, stumps and branches. And what does it all mean? And how do we change the way we think to be able to receive what you're actually saying for us? I pray that I would be helpful in developing that in us today and that we would hear your message. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. All right, what do we notice about this tree? It's located in the middle of the earth. Its height is exalted up. It grows and becomes strong. Its top reaches the heavens like the Tower of Babel with its top in the heavens. It's visible to the whole earth. It bears leaves that are beautiful to look at and bears abundant fruit that feeds all. It provides shelter for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air nest in its branches. Now, all this imagery is just loaded with meaning, and it fits the description of what scholars call the cosmic tree. It's an image common to many ancient cultures in which a God's life-giving presence is represented by and conveyed through a tree on a high place that also tends to represent a king and his kingdom. So there's many ancient depictions of a, of a tree on the top of a mountain and maybe a, a goddess or a god is sitting in the tree or, or the tree has inscribed with a king's name. Um, this is, you know, present in Assyria, Egypt. All these places are kind of like this. Also, trees are a big deal in the Bible. A little quote from an author named Matthew Sleeth who wrote about this. <clears throat> Trees are mentioned in the Bible more than any living thing other than God and people. 
There's a tree on the first page of Genesis, the first Psalm, the first page of the New Testament, the last page of Revelation. Whether it is the fall, the flood, or the overthrow of the Pharaoh, every major event in the Bible has a tree marking the spot. On average, there is a tree, root, stump, vine, branch, or seed represented on average on every second page of your Bible. Covenants are made by trees. God encounters people at trees. Gods are worshipped at trees on high places, which is actually a depiction of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Which is to say, one thing we're supposed to get from the Bible is that people are like trees. People are like trees. Trees represent kings and nations and peoples. And to illustrate that, I just want to do a little visual here. Uh, this is a picture we made a long time ago for our Genesis series. But in Genesis 1, you have the layout of the six days of creation. And you'll notice that they're kind of laid out uh, like a grid. Days 1 through 3 represent the domains and dominions, the places that God creates and separates out and orders. Days 4 through 6 are the inhabitants that fill or rule those dominions, those domains. And as you read it, there's kind of a rhythm to it, but that rhythm gets interrupted twice. And the two times it gets interrupted, they just happen to relate to each other. Day one, God does one thing. Day two, God does one thing. Day three, God does two things. What does he do on day three? God said, let the earth produce green plants that will bear seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which there is seed according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. Then we resume. Day four, God does one thing. Day five, God does one thing. Day six, God does two things. Okay, and the extra thing that he does is he makes man in his own image, male and female, and he says, be fruitful, right? And multiply. So in two parallel extra creation acts, you get fruitful trees multiplying seed and fruitful humans multiplying seed. Huh. And this image is intentional and it's meant to make you think. Psalm 1 picks up on it. The introduction to the book of Psalms says people are trees. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, Prospers. Oh, there's our word prosper again, right? Like Nebuchadnezzar seeing a tree in his prosperity. And that tree is himself, right? And this psalm kind of brings us back to this imagery of the garden. Two trees are planted next to the four rivers that water the earth. And they prosper abundantly. And there's fruitfulness in the garden and so on. And delight. The one who delights in the Lord and meditates on his words is like a tree in the garden whose roots are connected with the source of life and who experiences longevity 
blessing. And just for fun, let me give you a little illustration here. I'm going to show you two images. Exhibit A, what do you see? <clears throat> All right, just look at it for a moment. Okay. Uh, then exhibit B. All right, exhibit B here is a, this is a picture of a tree that I took. It's on 32nd Street. Maybe you recognize it. It's kind of, it's just a fascinating, big, gnarly tree. And I, one day I finally got out of my car and took my camera and I was taking a picture and the neighbor comes out and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I just, I just like the tree. Sorry, you know. <laughs> but exhibit A is actually a picture of a resin cast of the inside of a human lung. Okay, this is the inside of a human lung. So, so inside of us, we have like this inverted tree. And what's so interesting is that the lung, it, it takes air in through the trunk, whereas a tree will take air in through the branches and leaves. And the lung has leaf-like structures called alveoli. And they process oxygen and turn them into carbon dioxide, whereas a tree's leaves will take carbon dioxide and process it and turn it into oxygen, right? So we have an inverted tree inside of us. Isn't that interesting? There's like this inverse correlation between humans and trees. Maybe that was intentional. Now, that picture, you know, that doesn't come from the Bible. That's just an observation that people have made. And so I thought it was interesting. But what's interesting about Genesis is what sets it apart from other cultures. In most ancient cultures, trees didn't represent all people, but typically God's kings and their kingdoms. But notice Genesis 1, God tells all humans to be his rulers, having dominion over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish and so on. And that's the picture that we have with Nebuchadnezzar and the tree and all the beasts and the birds and so on. So God's vision for all humanity is that all people are like trees connected to his life source and exercising his rule and dominion over the earth, having their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice of dis to discern good and evil, as Hebrews 5 says. Or as Psalm 1 said, having delighted in and meditated on God's words and laws. Because if you are going to be a ruler, what do you need? You need wisdom, right? You need the ability to discern between good and bad, what's good and evil, if you're going to make right judgments in the world. And now the words good and evil, what do they remind you of? A tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. And this is important. Trees that were pleasing to the eye. Oh, the leaves of Nebuchadnezzar are pleasing to the eye, right? And good for food. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar's fruit is abundant and good for food, right? In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do we make of this tree of knowing good and evil? And why does God command the man not to eat of it? Scholars often call this tree the king tree or the kingly tree. It represents having the kingly knowledge of what is good or evil, thus being able to rule rightly. And what's God's intent for all of us? 
to be his tree-like kingly representatives, kings and queens, right? So why is this tree off limits? Why is it a bad tree? And the answer is no, the tree is not a bad tree. It's a very good tree. What's bad is taking of this tree on our own terms rather than trusting in God's will for life, abundance, and wisdom. Or another way to put it would be that the right to eat of this tree has to be given, not taken for ourselves. This is kind of illustrated later when God's children are again about to be replanted, this time in the promised land. God begins to address them and debrief them in Deuteronomy chapter 1. He says, as for your little ones, the ones who will enter the land, he says, the ones that you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there and to them I will give it and they shall possess it. Okay, so at this point, the, the people, the children of Israel, they're like children and children don't have an adequate discernment or knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were in their infancy of their humanity. They did not develop a right knowledge of what's good and bad in order to be able to rule and govern rightly. By the end of Deuteronomy, God has just laid out all of his laws and his rules, basically the knowledge of what is good and bad. And he ends by saying, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Right? He says, Now you're ready. I've given you good and evil. Life and good, death and evil. Second Samuel, King David, is regarded by uh, one of his servants who comes in with a message for him. She says, My lord the king is like the angel, the messenger of God, to discern good and evil. The Lord God be with you. Okay, in other words... His kingliness is measured by his ability to hear from God as to what is good or evil. And we know that David doesn't always get that right, does he? Sometimes he does what is right in his own eyes. His son Solomon becomes king. And God says, you've got the kingdom. I could give you anything you want. Ask me, what do you want? Solomon looks around and he goes, um, the word of my lord the king Excuse me, I had the wrong verse. It says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Okay, so if Genesis 1, you look at that grid, and it's pointing to a parallel between people and trees, people who are made to rule and the image of a tree that lives a long time and is steadfast and sturdy and represents that kingly rule. And then they're put in a garden and they're told not to eat of a tree that represents the knowledge of good and evil, but instead are invited to eat of God's trees, including the tree of life. Eventually, what we have is this picture of humanity maturing to a point where we can actually represent God and know in that maturity, have discernment and judgment over what is actually good and what isn't good, what's bad, what's evil, right? There is another tree, the tree of life. And the people are invited to eat of this tree, to taste God's abundance, to meditate on God's words day and night, to delight in the Lord, right? 
It, it represents God's eternal life and wisdom conveyed to a person through its fruit. Access to the tree of life is life. And they can eat that perhaps until they're ready to be given the knowledge of good and evil, like the children of Israel. Back to King Nebuchadnezzar. Like the tree of life, he is a tree in the middle of the earth. He is exalted up. Its top reaches the heavens. He's claiming to be a source of connection between heaven and earth. Just like Genesis 2, its leaves are beautiful to the eyes and its, food is, its fruit is good and abundant for food, right? It provides shelter for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air nest in its branches. Nebuchadnezzar has become the source of abundance and life for the nations, or so he thinks. The king sees himself as a cosmic tree of life. And the parallels between Genesis 1, 1 through 3 uh, in this are everywhere. God puts man in the garden, and his first command is to freely eat of any tree. Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, seeds of the kingdom of Israel. And they are offered to feast from the king's own food. And this is the first test that these young youths encounter. The king wants, to see, he wants them to see him as their source, right? Rather than God, but they refuse to eat his food. That was Daniel 1. For the king, the moment of taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is captured in his bold statement in verse 40. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? On the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. But notice that when Adam and Eve eat of the tree, they don't die that day. They're exiled. There's a different kind of death, perhaps. And they're exiled wearing the skins of beasts. Notice that when Nebuchadnezzar pronounces this, immediately what was prophesied comes to pass and he loses his mind. He is exiled. And he becomes, even physically, or at least representatively, like a beast. The serpent had said, when you take this tree, you'll become like one of the gods, knowing good and evil. It's a picture of a tree, right? In the ancient world. The king had come to see himself as a god, represented by a tree with its top in the heavens. He had completely forgotten that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And so I ask you today again, how did you get to where you are today? Who's responsible? Who sustains your life? Who orchestrates whether trees rise or fall? Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's a lot of false trees in our world. A lot of trees built up on their own wisdom, their own taking of good and evil, 
defining good as evil and evil as good. Sweet for bitter, bitter for sweet, light for dark, darkness for light. But there is a hope. After exile and separation, God gives hope for restoration to return to the tree of life. For Nebuchadnezzar, that hope is a stump with its roots still intact. For Adam and Eve, that hope is a seed, a seed of the woman that will strike the serpent's head, even as the serpent strikes his heel. Do you ever notice that the prophets refer to the coming Messiah as a righteous branch or a shoot from the stump of Jesse? And when Jesus comes, he says that the kingdom of God is a tree. He said it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Sounds familiar. There is a true tree, a true kingdom that Jesus is bringing, growing, planting, setting up on earth. Luke 13, oh, I read that. John 15, Jesus identifies himself as our connection to that source of life, that tree of life. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, the source behind the tree, right? Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Isn't it fascinating that in this statement, Jesus is claiming my tree is the right tree. My vine is the true vine. It is the source that will reconnect you with life. Not this false tree, this fig tree that represents Jerusalem that he's going to curse. And we'll get to that in a moment. But Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Notice how the New Testament authors often refer to the cross as a tree. Why? How does the symbolism, the meaning match up? Jesus offers a way back to God, his kingdom, his tree of life, precisely by dying on a tree. Like Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus departed his kingdom and was driven from among men. He was stripped of his robe like a tree stripped of its fruit as he hung on a tree stripped of limbs and branches. But of course, it didn't end there. Jesus had said that he would be like a seed and that in death, like a seed that has to be planted in the earth, from that seed would come resurrection. He became the curse for us so that now the way back to God's eternal life is precisely by attaching ourselves to the vine, precisely through Jesus' death. When we follow him through death, he pours into us the life of the Holy Spirit and renews us 
after the image of our creator to turn us into rulers, fruit-bearing trees. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25 says, for to, you, for, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. His suffering is an example for us so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we trust in God's justice, we no longer have to be the arbiters of justice. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What Peter is saying here is that Jesus paved the way to life, and that way is through death, in this case, death to sin, death to false kingdoms, death to false trees. What's your tree? What does it represent? What trees in your life are being built up as a reflection of who you are, perhaps? I've struggled with whether or not to speak to issues in our culture right now, in our country. Especially the extreme amount of polarization over the pandemic. Masks, especially over race right now. And everyone seems to gravitate towards a movement. It's not just about ideas, and it's not just about people. Everyone seems to be building up a tree, a tower. And so you've got the tower for Black Lives Matter, and you've got the LGBTQ tower, and you've got Republicans tower and you've got Democrats tower and you know all kinds of towers and what we're seeing today increasingly is that people just keep being categorized into this tower so if I say black lives matter and I mean black lives matter that is unequivocally true like there is no problem with that statement whatsoever but now there's a movement with a website and funding called Black Lives Matter. And attached to that movement is a whole slew of ideology. And in my opinion, as I look at the website and I read what it's about, I see a whole lot of Isaiah 5 calling good evil and calling evil good. I realize these issues are incredibly complex, and that's the same for the other towers, LGBTQ, Republicans, Democrats, and I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to answer the question, or at least attempt to, how are Christians supposed to think having our knowledge, discernment, discipline 
in the ability to distinguish between good and bad as we're called to. Because what we'll do and what we should do is say we need to love everyone as Christ does, which means that we say no to injustice, which means that if you do see systems in the world that are still in place that have resulted in inequality in some ways. In fact, I was made aware that there is a neighborhood development in Anacortes that still uh, has a charter from the 1950s, and in that charter, it still says, no blacks or Jews allowed. I, I was totally blown away by that. So yes, these things do exist, and yes, Christians should call them out, and yes, we should work towards justice and equality in all these areas. We should seek to love people, but I think sometimes in our compassion and in a desire to love people, we allow ourselves to become one with the ideology of the tower that's also being built, and instead of building up the kingdom of God, which is drawing people Purchasing people out of sin from every nation, tribe, and language, race, whatever it is, drawing them back to God and his life, to which there is now no distinction. There's no Jew or non-Jew. There is no male or female, no slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. We should have no problem recognizing our past mistakes because we are saved entrance into this kingdom, this tree, based on the fact that we have acknowledged that we are sinners. There should be no problem acknowledging our past mistakes when it comes to justice and injustice and so on. And at the same time, often I think that Christians decide that what it means to love people is to also build up this false tower. So how do you say one thing when it means alignment with something that you can't stand with? How do you still love people? I think we just read it in, in 1 Peter. What did Christ do? There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Jesus says that by the faith of his people, false trees, false towers, false mountains will pick themselves up and hurl themselves into the sea. Not we will hurl them into the sea. They will pick themselves up. Here's the story. On the way into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, as he's returning to the city, Jesus became hungry. And seeing a fig tree, a tree, by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree, excuse me, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. If you have faith, and I think as a kid, you got to admit, by misunderstanding this passage, maybe you tried a time or two to actually get a mountain to jump into the sea. 
I know I did. And walk on water and a few other things. <laughs> but in the context, what does Jesus do? This passage is sandwiched around him going into Jerusalem, turning over tables and predicting, quoting Jeremiah 7, to predict the destruction of this temple. This fig tree is a false tree. It's Jerusalem, a false tree of life. And he goes to it looking for fruit, but it can't give him any. And so he curses it, and it withers. By the faith of God's people, which rescue and create real equality where there is no race distinction, where there is no inequity. And yes, we've made mistakes on that in the past. But by faith and prayer, false towers, trees, mountains, kingdoms can topple. But it's not through some proud, smirking, holier-than-thou attitude. Jesus did not revile in return when he was reviled. It comes through a deep growth, being planted, delighting in the Lord, having our maturity grown to God's kingly status of being able to discern good and evil, which is not something that comes instantaneously. Graft yourself into the right tree. Graft yourself into the kingdom. Let God point out the false trees and security that you've built up around your life, the false notions that you created your own prosperity, that you generate life for those who surround you. Let him topple that thing down and build you up into a true tree. Because only then can we begin to pray and influence the false trees in this world who are full of people that God died to claim and loves so much. The picture of toppling a false tree is allowing them to crucify you on a tree, all the while praying for their forgiveness. Revelation 22 the end of the story says through the middle of the street of the city also on the side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations seek this tree seek this kingdom let's pray What's your plan, God? How can we trust you, the one who controls the pieces on the chessboard? Your plan is to restore us into the image of a tree as a ruler who conveys your life, your wisdom, your nourishment and fruitfulness to the world. That's my purpose. That's our purpose. But sometimes we think we can do that on our own and seize the knowledge of good and evil or define good as evil and evil as good. 
And when that happens, Lord, we need to be toppled, cut down, exiled. We need to die. And it's only through acknowledging this and dying to our sin with Christ that we are free from that curse, only because you are gracious enough to become the curse for us. And in this, we find your life, your Holy Spirit, your hope, and that is a hope for the healing of all nations who are to be one. So in this crucial hour in our history, raise us up to discern the knowledge of good and bad. Give us the ability to love right and not build false towers, to speak where we need to speak, to be silent where we need to be silent, to say yes and also to say no. Knowing that we might just be reviled as you were for us, but this is how we love people. And you desire us to be one. True unity is found in you. So God, convict us, discipline us, grow us, plant us in your word, in your truth. Give us the conviction to grow and to learn and to be what you've called us to be. Forgive us for our false trees. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to remind you that we love you and God loves you, and you always have a place here at ACC, even if it's virtually for now. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you need prayer or just want someone to talk to. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.